Samson and Matt Strong, because I see that they're talking about the imaginary before moving into the, uh, the displaced representative, but I might, I, 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 I'm more comfortable with the, the semiotics than I am the, uh, the Lacanianism. I thought exactly my problem with all uh, the whole semiotics thing is exactly that I don't know Lacan, so. <laughs> yeah, I don't know him very well either, but I. Based on the the chart I made when we last talked about the um the the representation and repression, which I think was like three eight, probably earlier. Uh, it was probably like three sets now that I think about it, but I've got the displaced representation. Excuse me, the displaced represented as the signified. The display, yes, um, yes, exactly. And so basically, well, the argument they are making, and in this section here, they just summarize what they've said earlier, right? So uh, the argument that they are here making is how Oedipus is moving through. Uh, through this whole thing um, from the savage system to the capitalist system and in the capitalist system the displaced representative has become as such the representation of desire basically that's the point they've talked earlier uh, about which they've talked earlier and um, that the um, uh, signified and the, and the referent are one now so that's basically uh, the whole thing about simulacra um but i actually I, I have no idea about the mechanics of this whole of this whole thing like i do not really understand what it means for the signified to be um unoccupied um let me see. I, I watched a lecture on Lacan, and it, this conversation is kind of reminded me of a a bit at the end where the lecturer gave this like timeline of what um, of basically how the phallus kind of comes to constitute the Oedipal triangle in Lacan. And I'm gonna I'm gonna try to like find it in my notes that I took and like re go over it because I th I think it's like. It's like they're purposely paralleling it in a way. Yeah. But this, yeah. So the sentence where this whole thing starts, where what I'm talking about is basically, um, Oedipus was always the displaced limit for every social formation since it is the displaced representative of desire. But in the primitive formations, this limit remains vacant. Precisely insofar as the flows are coded and as the interplay of alliances and filiations keeps families extended according to the scale of the determinations of the social field, preventing, preventing any secondary reduction of the latter to the former. In the despotic formations, the Oedipal limit is occupied, symbolically occupied, but not lived or inhibited. Inhabited. inhabited something like that, inasmuch as the imperial incest affects an overcoding that in turn surveys the entire social field from above. 
the depressing representation. The formal operations of flattening, extrapolation, and so on, that later belong to Oedipus, are already sketched out, but within a symbolic space where the object from on high is formed. It is only in the capitalist formation that the Oedipal limit finds itself not only occupied, but inhabited and lived. In the sense in which the social images produced by the decoded flows actually fall back on restricted familial images invested by desire. At this point, the imaginary that Oedipus is constituted, at the same time it is as it completes its migration in the in-depth elements of representation. The displaced represented has become as such the representation of desire. So, and I got the feeling that I should understand this after reading the uh, third chapter, but I absolutely don't. Uh, hmm. It's interesting that it ends its migration in the imaginary. I have to think about that for a second. I I mean, when we want to parallel this with um, Lacan, we have to know that this is a historical migration, right? So in Lacan, we would basically always be in either this the, the despotic or the um the capitalist system i'm not quite sure that, where Deleuze and Guattari plays Lacan but um this migration isn't in every isn't happening on an individual level okay now here here so i i've i've got my notes from that Lacan lecture in front of me that and and Basically, what this lecture, it's like by a PhD student in Lacanian psychoanalysis, and he's giving like an introduction to the Oedipal Triangle, the way that Lacan thinks about Oedipus. And the story that he says, you, you know, he gives for Lacan's Oedipus is that it starts with like, as a baby, right? They, there's this like stages of development that this baby goes through where the baby feels like mom doesn't address a certain need right and that mom has a real lack of something and then it goes from that to like i'm doing a bad job of explaining this but there's like a stage there's stages of like infantile development that i think are being paralleled here where where according to lacan the baby can't figure out you know what mom needs other than the baby so that the baby's needs aren't being addressed by the mom right and then and then the baby moves to the symbolic or uh, like area where they start looking at the dad and uh, crap (laughs) at any rate i'm really really reminded of that sort of timeline from lacan but deleuze and guattari are playing it out with uh like historical stages instead of it being a baby's timeline right and and both timelines end in the imaginary because the child is lacan's like the imaginary and the child in the oedipal triangle are supposed to be like the same spot in the triangle i don't know (laughs) yeah i mean that might make sense that they end basically on the lacanian notion of Oedipus, because that's what they are doing, right? They're historicizing this whole triangle. Mm. But I think the movements that are described by them and by Lacan are different movements. Like he, Lacan describes the formation of a subject and they are describing the formation of the formations that form the subject. I think that's fair. 
Yeah, I think I think because they are also talking about subject formation, but they're talking about it in a way where like, uh, don't they say earlier that like the subject isn't open to the social field and that they, those two things aren't really closed off from one another? Uh, yeah. Cause, and then I'm also reminded of, so like the way the lecturer ended the lecture, um, he started talking about masculine and feminine subjects. Um, the idea that the like simple way that he described it was that masculine subjects you know try to possess the phallus the like the like uh what is it adopting the authority of the law in order to have a substitute for the phallus and then that the feminized subject is about like what is it uh like sort of becoming that object of desire becoming that sort of lost object uh, i've Maybe it's too early for me to make these kind of connections. It's been too long since I've been reading this book. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I'm going to have to do everything very sketchily. <laughs> do you have a link to that lecture? I, I do. Give me one second. I sent it a while ago. I'll send it again. Yeah, but my overall impression was anyway that I should probably read up on Lacan before going back to both the second and the third chapter. This lecture was really helpful, so uh, I recommend checking it out, but it's like an hour and a half long. Jack, do you have any thoughts on this whole thing? Um, I think so. Can I just ask where the can I ask for the page number um for the quote you read before I um before I give them to you? Two sixty six in the PDF. I don't know which version that is. Got it. Oedipus was always so. I mean, you can see the retrospective lens, right? With the displaced limit there, you can kind of see the lens of a little bit of capitalism there, but um, obviously that's a common theme throughout the genealogy. But my impression was that even if Oedipus is the limit, right? Like you don't, at least in my, my, my impression from these sections is that you don't see Oedipus in the primitive or the despotic. Um, and I think they even write during the dis, uh, the despotic machine section um, of representation that the conditions aren't aren't there yet because Oedipus needs something more than just overcoding. And so, like my impression of when they're they're talking about the signifier and the rep uh, the referent collapsing in that way is like, and and the point about occup um, occupied and lived is like. In those other two representational machines, we we don't find anybody living out the edible thing, because um, right they take the pains to talk about how colonialization brings that to them, right, and that there's this whole process to edipalize, because it's not there just yet. Um, it's almost like an export in that regard. For those of you keeping score in Keynesian GDP. Um, but joking aside, my impression is that when they're talking about the signifying the referent uh, collapsing there, and like the displaced represented or the the uh, the displacement of desire, it sounds to me like um, it, it's Oedipus is vacuous as a limit in that regard. Like nobody's really living out that fantasy. And in fact, I would go so far as to say like. Oedipus in the story of Oedipus isn't Oedipalized um, because it's one, it's not capitalism, but two, under the despotic machine, that's 
ironically not exactly possible, right? It's not that it's not the story we know. Um, even though we look back on it, perhaps in that regard. And so it seems like when the signify uh, when when the semiotic aspect collapses like that, it sounds like we we get into this problem, like you're saying, of um, subjectivity and creating the subject, right? Where it becomes difficult not to at least bespeak of Oedipus, right? Or even whether it's an enunciation or perhaps more uh, directly in what we write, there's this problem that Oedipus um, allows for a sort of displacement, right? Whether it's through interpretation or what have you, um, where, where desire would seem to be congealing around Oedipus. Okay. Yeah, I think I got something from that. But um, how would you formulate works of this in the despotic system where we where they say that um, the Oedipal limit is symbolically occupied but not lived or inhabited? So basically, that's the 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 kind of repression they talked earlier about, where where the um, where desire actually targets something else than what repression says that you want. For the sake of a disclaimer, like I said, the Lacanianism is not my forte. Um, but I'll still take a stab at that question. So what I was getting out of that sentence is that um, so like there's, there's still these concerns about in- incest, right? In the despotic, there's concerns about incest in relation to despotic, right, due to overcoding. And that's in relation to, um, right, that's the overcoding of the, the primitive territorial representation where incest looks a little bit different, right, because we don't have uh, the despotic lineage and those, uh, those wonderful perverts. So I think the thing about the occupation is, like, I took that as meaning... And I could be wrong here, but I took that as meaning like, even if the conditions are there for Oedipus, which we know in the despotic are not quite there yet, nobody's living it. The, the, the Oedipal subjectivity or the, the, the Oedipal displacement, right? Because um, I think that's kind of what they're getting at with the referent is that it can be, you know, now there's a place for desire to seemingly flow. Right, even if it is a, a paralogism, it, it it's it's got an um, object more directly as opposed to a, something more like um, se- uh, semiotic for these purposes. Or I guess I should say, like when I say semiotic, I mean like a physical marking or a, a mental um, aspect, like more directly. Like there's an edible, there there seems to me that you can actually do and perhaps be. Oedipal um, things as opposed to like the question of whether or not there are Oedipal markings in the territorial. Okay, I think I try to figure out how this relates to the despot because in the capitalist system, that's what they do in the paragraphs prior to this section. Um, it's very clear um the the family members father and mother become and the child become simulacra in the sense that the displaced representative has 
uh, that's basically what they say when they say uh, the displaced representative has become the representation of desire. Um, uh, they, uh, they both are actual persons and are these societal positions. I, I, I'm, I'm butchering this, but um, maybe we should go back to the simulacra a bit. I I look for that one. While you're looking for that, I like your point too, because one of the things that's kind of struck stuck out to me as I've been reading this and reflecting more is like with the, the discussion on codes and even like you're saying with like the with how that relates to the social, right? So like things like institutions or social place, right? Especially in the representation. It's, I've been toying with the notion that this really strikes at the heart of like a superego. That is to say, like, this the, the part of their, so like the way they're walking out codes, the way they're walking out um, representations, and the, the way it works as a territory, especially in relation to Socius. I, I, it struck me that it sounds like what they're doing is they're going like, in a similar way like that we've talked about how like they've you know they've kind of inverted the ego or like forget the id right like they say at the beginning what a mistake to have spoken of the id it seems like they're doing something kind of similar with the superego i think that makes a lot of sense that they are kind of uh, they're very indebted to psychoanalysis for the like ideas of these like superegos and the lacanian structure of the family but they really are trying to like I don't know if dismantle is the right word, but they're trying to re-impregnate it with like a social consciousness that is kind of not there when you're looking at like Lacan or Freud, all these things are just supposed to be, you know, the structures of the psyche, uh, you know, detached from the sort of politics that, you know, might constitute the ability to write a book about the psyche or, you know, experience the psyche. Um, it's yeah it's, they're sort of opening up the super ego and the id to the social field and the ego they're opening all of these things up to the social field which is why i think they do this sort of rhetorical like paralleling this the stages of development and psychoanalysis with different eras of like you know history and that's how they end up saying like oh the oedipal triangle is a universal history but only in the condition that it ends in capitalism of course. And that's kind of what, why I bring up the point uh, before we move into simulacra. It, it may help us, perhaps. Um, but in, in so, right, like the, the superego, as I've always conceived it, is supposed to be kind of like the social voice that acts as like your conscience in a sense, right? Like it's, it seems really personal and individual to me, despite the social connection. And Maybe that's a viable interpretation, but what I've kind of been, been noodling on reading this book, reading Antiedipus, is that it's not so personal, right? And, and like, it's not so much like it's not quite like Kafka, where you've got uh, right at the trial where you've got, you're being spoken at, um, right? It's not so like it's maybe there is resentment, but it's not quite in that way. That is to say, like because they've got this notion of cathexis, which I think is really helpful here. 
as and we talked about this a little bit yesterday with like enunciation and and, and writing um but because you are using codes right and, and it's kind of unavoidable yeah but because you're you're participating with codes and especially if you're you're moving through the representation and Oedipus is circulating, um, as I believe they say it does during capitalism, uh, especially with this displacement, right? That, that's not so much that's not doesn't seem like this idea that the superego is speaking at you is going to be helpful here, because you're you're actively doing it, right? You're investing in it in a cycle. Well. And not only are you investing in it, but it's socially invested in, right? Like, you're not the only one speaking the code. Um, others around you that you're connected with are speaking the code, right? It's not so, it, it doesn't seem to boil down to your individual, like, take on society. Yeah, and that, I think, gets at what you reminded me of is the, is what's useful about their way of talking about schizophrenia, right? Because they have these these codes, these territorialities, whatever you want to call it, these sort of structures that are circulated throughout society. And when you can't, for whatever reason, you know, you, you have these different ones or these d different feelings or different ways of investing the social field, that, that sort of detachment is a really, really interesting way of characterizing schizophrenia because it makes it, uh, you know, it, it might be individual and genetic on on one level, but it's a lot interest. It's a lot more interesting to think about what the schizophrenic says about how everything else is working instead of just treating them like a sort of isolated incident. Yeah, and it speaks to like a. I, I hesitate to call it a social schizophrenia, but um, really, we saw how the despotic machine has the paranoiac, right? That I think they even call like the mega paranoiac machine. Right, because it's supposed to contrast the mega machine of the earth, and actually, it's a nice. It is a really good foil they make there. Um, but that said, right, like the fact that the fact that the despotic machine is paranoiac in that way, right? Social relations are paranoiac, and not in the sense of everybody's, you know, um, everybody's fiending cloak and da uh, dagger, but it, it speaks to more of like something a little bit more than just throwing symptoms and seeing how they stick, right? Like it, the way they're talking about paranoia and schizophrenia is not reducible to like anxiety, feverish desire, um, delusions of grandeur, right? Like that. And that's part of the, the point too, because what they've, I think, done really well, right? Because we're, we're talking about codes now, delusions of grandeur, paranoia, schizophrenia, um, I think they've they've done a really nice way of enunciating something with that code that isn't that doesn't seem to really fall back on just uh, repetition, right? Like it's I, I don't think when they talk about the paranoiac machine as the the despot or those relationships, it suffices to just talk about symptoms anymore especially since we're talking about active investment or cathetsis here. Yeah, mm, like that a lot. I'm reminded of the phrase group fantasy. I don't know if we ever walked out like a real definition for that back when we were reading it in section two. But I, but I, I come back to that phrase sometimes when I'm thinking about this book and what I'm getting from it is that like every fantasy is a group fantasy quote, I think from ch chapter two somewhere. 
I think it's chapter one. And I think we actually talked about it a few sessions ago. I'm not sure in which one. Yesterday. I don't remember that. <laughs> Just talked about it for a little bit. Uh, but it's on page 64, I think. Yeah, 64. That's where they um, mentioned the pseudo-individual fantasy and the group fantasy. Well, then I wonder, should should we think about Oedipus as if it's a group fantasy? Should we should should are those things similar? Because they don't really give a good yet definition. I remember they don't really explain what they mean by that, and I had to like try to look it up. Uh, is the Oedipal Triangle a group fantasy? Can you hear me right now? Yes. Yes. Okay, my computer is going. Not schizo, but ballistic on me. Um, that's what I mean when I say like the social and the individual. Although I don't mean to draw a hard dichotomy, but like, because I don't, I, like I said, I don't know Lacan very well, so I don't quite, I don't quite know what he means by individual and group. But as I understand, like with group dynamics and that, right? Like you, you can do the Freudian thing where you've got this, the super ego and what the society says, like speaks at you, but that doesn't quite explain how you're investing in it and how it mutually flows and reinvests through different people, right? Like they talk about stock and things like that, right? Like there's, you know, there's kind of like an economics there where it's, it's not so reducible to like um, a voice speaking, Right, even even for the the Erstad or like uh, the state as barking dog, like it may be a barking dog, but there's all these people making that happen, and they we're we're part of that, and not a, not at a level where we can exclude each other, right? So like what you're talking, as, as I understood that part in, in in the earlier section of the book, it seemed to me like they were saying like, yes, you might fantasize, you might have um ideas even you might have conceptions be that dreams be that um the, a certain lustiness or be that like you know ideas about what you want to be in society or what you want to do in society but those come with social relationships not only are they socially conditioned but it's it's reflexive right so like they they mutually act on each other and so like um make the final point that's kind of what I mean when I say, like, even with the individual, right? Like, the superego still would seem to kind of be at this individual level. But where, where I see them moving is like, yeah, maybe you've, you, you've got your assemblage as yourself. And sure. But that is also in relation to these social machines. And, right, that's in relation to the territories and the codes. And, and at that level, I think that's what they're talking about with group fantasy is that like, even when I fantasize about, say, being a lawyer, that fantasy is only possible in relation to judges, juries, clientele, criminality. All these things don't necessarily condition it, although there are conditions there, but they, they form like a gumbo, right? Like it's an admixture that makes that possible. I, I love the uh, image of a gumbo. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm taking that from uh, Ice Cube. Um, so on the notion of superego, I, I think we have there... So my understanding of the superego was always that it's kind of 
a solution to the problem that we kind of need to integrate conceptually uh, integrate individuals into the totality of of um, um, of society or whatever I don't know um, as I understand it that's kind of left over from Hegel and I don't know Hegel um, but I think um, this whole thing that they so maybe what you just said maybe understood in a move away from this dichotomy between a totality and um, and individual which is consistent with the whole um, perspective of individuation I think because we so like I don't actually understand this whole thing but um, the, my understanding was that um, even in the later part like in, in ATP then um, the rhizome and all that stuff is basically an attempt to overcome this thinking in a duality or dialectic between a totality and um, something specific or structure and individual all that stuff thank you for that and yeah I, I think so because like if this if we can't just transplant the superego right if it if it's if it doesn't look like that right and uh, that is just me be speaking of the representation there in a sense but yeah, if, if we can't just rely on the totality of the model to explain it, then the, the, you're right, we find a lacuna, right? Okay, so has anyone anything left to say about um, this part? Because I would have another question conceptually, um, but that's more related to Marxism than psychoanalysis. <laughs> The final comment, uh, I think we should rename it the uber-ego in uh, relation to the uber-mensch. I mean, in German, it's actually the same word, right? Like, used for um, über-ich and über-mensch. It's both, um, the, the, like, the über-part is the same. That was my attempt at a joke. So thank you all for bearing with me. It turns out there's linguistic precedence, so... I've stumbled upon an actuality I sought to avoid. Okay, so I'll go um, to Marx. Um, and that's something they've talked about earlier. Again, this is a summary chapter. Um, on page 270, um, they talk about what Marx said about Luther and Adam Smith and Ricardo and how this relates to what they say about Freud. And specifically, they say that Marx said that Luther's merit was to have determined the essence of religion no longer on the side of the object, but as an interior religiosity. And the merit of Adam Smith and Ricardo was to have determined the essence of the essence or nature of wealth no longer as an objective nature, but as an abstract and deterritorialized subjective essence. 
the activity of production in general. Now, I know enough of Luther to understand what uh, the point of Luther is, but I can't, and I have, I know that this is basically what Marx said, Robert, um, but I haven't really understood what exactly subjective means in this context. And I wondered whether anyone could clarify that. I will take a stab. Um, it's often struck me as strange that... And you actually, I don't know if anybody here watches the, the American TV show Pawn Stars. Um, and if you do, call him for Battletoads, right? No, don't do that. Um, anyways, it's always struck me as weird. And, and I saw on that show that people read Adam Smith because it's supposed to be a handbook to you making money. And I think that's kind of what they're getting at with this interiority too for, for Luther. That is to say, um, they, it seems to me that kind of what they're getting at is that like even with capital and labor as quanta and even happiness, right? Like utility and utils, which I think was still in vogue at this time. I don't think economists were off quantification of happiness just yet, but that seems to me to come with a subjectivity. Um, and oddly enough, like... I think kind of the trick here is trying to understand the subjectivity in relation to the deterritorialization. That for me is kind of like um, the knot to unfurl there. Yeah, I mean, no, actually, I'm, I'm, I actually wonder what the Marxist sense of subject is that they are invoking here because well on luther's side it's pretty easy you have uh, like luther um moves the 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 relationship to god to a personal relationship like what's actually important is your personal relationship to god that's the move that luther makes um um, and that kind of fits with a colloquial understanding of what subjective means. I really hate these terms, subjective and objective, because they are basically uh, completely bastardized in popular discourse. Like, they basically just mean um, true and opinion right now in popular discourse. And... Um, I'm trying to figure out what exactly the technical meaning in the Marxist sense that they are invoking here is. I'm, I'm, so I'm thinking that it has to do with um, the subject in terms of like politics, um, like the subject of laws, right? The person uh, who is, you know, uh, it writes into the social contract, the person who has rights, the person who is described by the legal apparatus of a state. So it's sort of like, I mean, I think in this example, you can read it in terms of like subjectivity being, um, you know, an individual experience of wealth, uh, that sort of way of reading it. But you can also read it in terms of like the, you know, political structure exists such that individuals moving wealth around is the, you know, basis of the economy in the sort of a, a liberal capitalist sense. And I think that that would fit with um, the way that Marx would use it, uh, it, it, it you know, I don't know. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, because they then go on um, and talk about Freud. And they, um, the same thing must be said of Freud. His greatness lays in having determined the essence or nature of desire no longer in relation to objects, aims, or even sources, territories, but as an abstract subjective essence, libido or sexuality. But he still relates this essence to the family as the, yeah, okay, that's the caveat. I, I think this goes back. I think Muskie's on the right track, though, where it's like, and this kind of relates to how I, I, I think about Cash as the capital, um, or excuse me, Cash as Celsius, but like, it, and I hopefully my Pawn Stars thing helped with this, but it, it seems to me like the subjectivity is almost in the representation here, or in this idea of, um, uh, of production as Ricardo and Smith laid it out, or for Freud, and there's a certain way that connecting with that, um, with with social machines and desiring machines, allows for that, um, especially that third synthesis where the territories are are extremely important. But it seems like that connection is contingent on this this um on this essence here, or if it is an essence. Um, on what they they've given as a deterritorialized essence. Yes, because in in chat Hera brought just up uh, both Smith and Marx subscribe to labor theory of value. Yes, and I think that's exactly what they are talking about. But and that's why I'm kind of getting stuck here because in our contemporary parlance, the labor theory of value wouldn't like is opposed. Uh, is um, positioned um, in opposition to um, a subjective theory of value. I don't know the actual terms that economists use these days. Um, but in, in Marx terms, subjective means something different. And I'm trying to figure out what exactly, what exactly um, subjective means in the terms of Marx's labor uh, theory of value. I kind of take it to be like if if you want subjectivity, you kind of have to think of yourself within the confines of labor theory or labor theory of value. Though I'm not sure how satisfying that is. Okay, so um, could you apply what you just try to explain about Marx to what they say about Freud? Well, their their point seems to be at least Ricardo and and Luther didn't bring it all back to the, the triangle of the family right so right like it, it so in what i just said in terms of like if you if you want to you know experience like some subjectivity right like if you and if the subjectivity is acting upon you which is probably the better way to say it right in the, in the way things are doing and happening or the the connections right the quanta kind of that's it's more or less right like it's deterritorializing you but that movement through that is, is where the subjectivity seems to be. Um, it seems like the, the critique here of Freud is that like, okay, Freud, so you, you managed to do something similar with libido, even though it's not exactly through labor theory. Um, but you closed off that system through the family. 
right? Because I, I think even with Luther and, and um, the, the classical economists, or at least Smith and Ricardo, there's still these open systems, um, like w w what they talked about with the, uh, the debt economy and how that's actually an open rather than closed economic system. So that seems to be like, at least as I'm thinking about this right now, at the heart of this is that, well, at least they have open systems. Um, Freud closed his off, even though he's using a similar um, sort of, uh, he has a comparable mechanism or, or force here. I don't know if I'd say capitalism is an open system, but I think I think that mechanism, your description of the mechanism that they're outlining is uh, totally right. I, the reason I say I don't know if capitalism is open be, is because I'm sort of reminded of the like Mark Fisher idea, right? The like capitalist realism, like can we even imagine an alternative anymore? Fair point. But I think even with this, their point about the, the debt economy being an open system for the for the territorial um, for the the primitive territorial representation, um, I think that it stems to capitalism. I. Uh, I could be uh, mistaken there, but I, I think that that notion of open debt, and I think this is right in line with like the falling um, rate of profit and all that, all that other good Marxist economics, right? I think that's right in line with it because you do need that open, um, you need debt to kind of keep moving outward, right? And that's kind of why the family uh, gets problematized the way it does, or at least like problematized and then the uh, incest taboo right because you you need the outwardness for perpetual um, for perpetuation so you're saying that the incest taboo is sort of a way to push uh i guess push towards exogamy right exogamy for the sake of and i'm speaking strictly in the primitive here but exogamy for the sake of prolonging surplus value of code yeah i think i agree that makes a lot of sense uh it's interesting because I'm reminded of the way that like, like, like the way that certain families, you know, uh, I'm thinking about, okay, so on the sitcom, the American sitcom Modern Family, there's a gay couple and they very much replicate the nuclear family by like adopting a kid and like, you know, there's a, there's a masculine and a feminine role in the house. And, and it's interesting because it, that seems to be the family sort of moving out into spaces where it wouldn't have been a like like the sort of capitalist axiomatic right where it, it it it's constantly pushing into places where it wouldn't be before to your point and i can only say this because i've seen modern family i i agree with what you're saying um and i would point out that kind of like the underlying the, the right so like the reason i think that that holds holds water is that even with the gay um the, no it's not even a couple right they're married um, with those two husbands, that all still works in relation to the nuclear family that is um, Ed O'Neill and, and Sophia Vergara's, uh, well, I guess she marries in, but uh, maybe that's the point. But anyways, that is still the nuclear family, right? Is that that uh, one of the husbands is uh, the sibling of another wife and that the, these kids have these different relationships as a family, right? As a family. In relation to Grandpa Ed, and, and forgive me, I don't know, I don't remember any of the characters' names. <laughs> That's fine. I actually don't either. <laughs> it, it's been. I, I just remember Haley, 
unfortunately, but um, that that is still the nuclear family, right? Even though there's this family for the the gay couple, um, right? It's still within this larger familial um, triangle, right? Like it's still, and this is almost where it's like a Russian nesting doll in a sense. Although I think it will actually find that it's just an illusion of a nesting doll. It's all familial. Yeah, as soon as you said it, uh, triangle, I was like, it's triangles all the way down. <laughs> every every at every level, it's a triangle again and again and again. <laughs> yeah, which suggests to me that maybe there isn't even a series of triangles. Maybe it's, and that's kind of what I'm getting at too. Like, it just depends where on the level you're looking, right? But those levels are possible because there's a larger familial nucleus, which is the point of that show, right? Modern Family. It's, it's supposed to be the family um, with that sense of like, you know, oh, my brother's gay and I, I'm friends with his husband. And like you're saying, you know, the, there's still the gender binary. And like that, they both move. And even if you watch it, right, both, both men do kind of move through masculinity and femininity. But uh, as with anything, right, like they, they tend to kind of be still polarized right like they're supposed to be a woman and a man even if they do kind of go vacillate a little bit totally yeah i think that's a, 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 a shockingly accurate description of the show but i've also never seen it so <laughs> uh, um um but i do like i do, i do think what we're seeing here is like you know the proliferation of an Oedipal triangle it, it, maybe it's not totally fair example because it's a sitcom so we're talking about representation kind of a second order away from the way people are living it but you, you know there's that first big triangle that has the sort of spout uh, the, the 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 first generation of children and then there's another one and it's proliferating again and then presumably as the t- children from the s- first marriages grow up they proliferate a triangle in their households and it's that 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 pattern that they're talking about of the only one of the ways to resolve the edible triangle is to you know occupy it you have to recreate it yeah, and so to to walk this back to Lou's question, and maybe he um because it, it is a really interesting. I'm glad you you picked out this passage. Maybe um, you can give us some more thoughts on. But to to walk it back to your question now, I think that's kind of the point here, right? Is like so sexuality, libidinal energy, right? Because at least for Freud, libidinal energy is not always sexual, although it more often than not is. Um, but either way, that that concept of sexuality and the libidinal, we can see here that it is kind of, especially in the modern family sense that we've just walked out, um, it appears to be locked in the familial, right? So it's caught in a, a sort of closed off circulation. It's interesting that this notion of like openness or abundance or sort of infinite resources in nature to be exploited, that that's quite new to... Uh capitalism and uh, like if you go back as far as well originally in, in the christian myth originally uh, the world be- belongs to god and its fruits belong to the people and then you have aquinas who says yeah you can claim property but uh when it comes to needs when it comes to like if, if a mother is starving and she needs to feed her kids everything is public property and then you have smith who um uh, says you can always claim lambs to be yours or like the homestead principle, but uh, still labor to your value in a sense. But he still delimits it 
with this uh, caveat that, well, there's enough for everyone else to go and claim their own land. And um, this, this seems to have fallen out of uh, favor, this idea that uh, you're only allowed to go out and claim land and make it your private property because nature is infinite. And we seem to have realized that the resources are not infinite, but to have kept this push of like, yeah, claim it, you know? So I wonder if that's at all relevant, but your, your, your discussion about openness and sort of uh, the expansion of capitalism reminded me of this historical development. Well, even with surplus value of code, right? Even if we're dealing with so much, um, I don't know, so much wool, because right, that's what Marx uses in his economic analysis, wool and codes. Even if you're dealing with so many wool, uh, so many aspects of wool, and I don't know, so many rolls of wool. Try saying that three times fast. So many rolls of wool, and so many coats. Like that exchange um, seems to come with that again a surplus value of code, right? So, like to your point here, I think you're probably right that like Smith and and, and the others um, believe that there's enough to go around. And actually, even I think even the wealth of nations, right? There's that this sort of taboo passage of, of Smith where he he talks about like a wealth tax, right? So like if, if somebody dies with way too much property, and I think he even gives a number, um, the state should redistribute uh, that wealth, right? And that that's Adam Smith. Um, so I think you're probably right that he has in mind ideas of a certain fairness and a certain some idea of distribution in that regard, but um, also to get um, to the point of like, even if there isn't infinitude, right? Um, and I think it's probably in both that they're not. Um, with that expansion comes the, the, this, the, the whole debtor-creditor relationship and the what appears to be this prolonging of um, of debt and in connection with debt, the surplus value of code, d- despite finite resources, and in fact, actually in virtue of finite uh, resources. Yeah, I think most modern uh, uh, capitalist theorists just denounce completely. I don't remember what it's called. It's called like the, uh, I'll, I'll find out, but uh, th- there's like a clause in Adam Smith that they just completely denounce about this uh, sort of upper limit on uh, like you can only claim more private property if public property is infinite or like unbounded. So I'm going to try to reformulate the point about the subjective essence. And I'm going to do this, I, I, like I try to, to do this without jargon. So I think what they are getting at here is, or, or what Marx's point earlier is, is that as in the case of Luther, where um, faith and religion becomes like... Um, defined by your praxis like by the by by by, by um, human doing basically um, Adam Smith with his um, value uh, theory of labor 
uh, achieves the same for wealth and that value is now dependent not on the properties of the objects but um, dependent on human praxis, on human doing. Yes, on the work you do. And that's basically the notion of subjective essence, right? Like um, the, the, the wealth as faith is dependent on an acting subject or on, sub on a subject that acts and uh, constitutes it, right? Like that's the whole point about um, the whole point about um, Entfremdung. Um, what's, what's the Entfremdung uh, thing? in English, I don't know. Um, yes, alienation um, is how we basically, like, it's more technical, but basically we forget that value is achieved through or through um, uh, through our doing. It's, it's, it's objectified and becomes... Um, Uh, and becomes this objective thing that's independent of our subjective acts. So, and now the turn to Freud would be that what they see, what Deleuze and Guattari see in Freud, and I think that's is that um, libido and, and sexuality are not. They see the potential to not define it as lack, right? That would that has to be it because uh, basically when we define as libido and sexuality as dependent on objects, that's where we get lack. But it's a positive energy, like positive in the sense that uh, it's it's a surplus, a, a reservoir of energy, and not like a, a lack that needs to be like a hole that needs to be filled right and that's the connection that's that sound right yeah i think that's really well argued um because i i think you got it i think you said it quite nicely right for luther uh our faith is what we do for for smith in a sense right our wealth is what we work uh right and we can we can debate how how these hold up in practice. But uh, I think you're right for Freud, our sexuality is, um, shall we say, what we connect with, to put it um, in a PG-13 friendly way. But with the caveat, as they seem to be pointing out, that um, what we connect with in relation to the familial. Yes, they early in, in, in chapter two, they talked about... Um... Uh, I need to look that up before I can talk about. They talked about two modes of modeling the psyche. Like, uh, I need to look that up. If I understand too, like to kind of open this up, um, to, to open up, or to rather to dig deeper into your argument, it would seem to me too that. Right, if your faith is what you do, and your um, uh, your, your wealth is what you work, and and your sexuality is what you connect with, um, if you know what I'm saying, uh, 
so with that right like it also seems to be like like you're saying there's this potential there um but there's also it seems to be this um this point about like since it's no longer the objective nature of things right like you're saying it's no longer about the um you know the objects of faith you have the objects of wealth you have and um i guess whatever sexual objects you you're looking for um but since it is this more like or at least what we're saying like it has the potential to be what you're doing it seems to me too though that there might be an implicit caveat in the sense that they're talking about a deterritorialized subjective essence which as i'm under, as i'm thinking about it seems to be like okay, so we've got this idea that what I work for is, is my wealth, right? Without going into labor. Um, and so in that, right, like there's a, a certain subjectivity with that, even though that is very impersonal of me and everyone else in this, in the system, right? I, my wealth is what I work for. Um, but again, that's not going to take into account the, the system and the, or at least not very explicitly, the system, and it's not going to include me, it's not going to include Lou, it's not going to include Musby, right? Because it's deterritorialized. In, in a similar way uh, with sexuality, right? Like, it, especially when we're talking about like mothers and fathers, right? Like that's not you or me. Um, that's That's the familial, right? And that's, that seems to be part of the critique is like, that's, you know, not only is it, not only is there perhaps a weakness or, or a point that these, um, that Luther and the, the classicalists are, are not going far enough, but Freud is actually um, faced with a larger shortcoming. I think generally, generally you're right. Um, but I think the point, like they spell that don't spell that out and i think they don't spell the critique on the classicals out because um that's what marx did right so basically they are they are positioning themselves as um as to freud as marx is to uh, smith and ricardo and that's the whole thing about uh, autocritic also where they talk about bringing oedipus to autocritique just as marx brings capital to autocritique that point i got from uh the guy who wrote that intro book holland no i appreciate that and, and that does make especially with the when you when you gave that that passage um about the autocritique actually i i found that really convincing because i think you're right that right marx does provide the autocritique um I'd be curious who did that to Luther, but yeah, I, I, I really like that counterpoint. Weber, actually, <laughs> maybe, don't know. Whether or not he did it, I'm going to go with uh, hashtag Weber always. Did we have a Weber discussion that I did not notice? No, it's not an easy sell, man. The, some of our Marxist friends are still looking for the Marxist group, so... Hard, hard, hard sell with Weber. I don't think Weber needs to be read in opposition to Marx, actually. <laughs> Frankfurt School would agree with me. 
I also agree, but it's too often in sociology, uh, sociology 201 or 101 taught in opposition. But I, I agree with you. And the Frankfurt School, hashtag Hannah Arendt. I need to go on record and say that the clause I mentioned was not by Smith, but by Locke. It's called the Lockeum Provisio. And it's uh, kind of denounced by modern free market theorists. Sorry, say that again. I... So, like, like earlier, earlier I mentioned how Aquinas and Smith both sort of delimited the claim. You, you, Mike was cutting out, and I fear that now it has fully cut out. Hera, if you can hear me and are speaking right now, type yes in chat, because I can only see your green uh, wreath. And I'll remind you, it's only October. Those come out... Uh, only for December 25th and never again. Yep, you lost me with this one, Lou. <laughs> I googled I get the for... Tears. That's it. <laughs> I googled for um, infinite symbiosis or unlimited symbiosis earlier, and that was one of the things that came up farther down in the Google image search. That is yeah. fascinating and depressing. This is incomprehensible. I have no idea what this means. <laughs> I would be curious. Is this a um, is this a forty five forty five ninety there, uh, Lou? Why are some of them only on two of the of the points and not on the third one? Obligatory, since it's Stuart Mill. It's for the better good of the community. I feel like I'm looking at the time cube. That second link seems to be where it's from, but I can't actually see the content of that thing, so I don't know how Google got that image. Yeah, I will say though, because um, at least what I'm getting out of this triangle for nothing else, if not a point of departure, is like code, because I see I see Pierce, and it looks like they're talking about. Maybe semiotics, maybe interpretation, maybe words. Um, but it strikes me too, like when I think of like the surplus code and all that, like when I think of like online shopping, um, and since today is Amazon Prime Day, it seems like a, a an appropriate day to, to talk about this. Like there's something with like the code there where like, in online shopping, there's this great excitement, right? And it seems like there's some subjectivity and there's intensities and uh, affects, right? But in the same way, like that's very quickly gone once the act of shopping is gone, right? And that seems to me to be like indicative of like, uh, at least it seems to be like a deterritorialization in the sense that like, you seem to have been working to produce a, a surplus value of code and that, and that connectivity, right, by, by online shopping. Um, but that's quickly gone, isn't it? And likewise, I would even think, like, if you're selling something on Prime Day, um, and I'm thinking of an individual person here, but perhaps more so even if you're participating in helping companies do this, if you work for Sony in sales, because um, you're so unfortunate uh in that same way right like there, there would still seem to be that this sense of like excitement that's sort of like 
I don't want to say alien to you, but it's not really your excitement, is it? Because you're not, you're not really, you're not really in it, are you? Or to be more clear, um, you're there, right? Like you're doing the shopping and that, but um, that act of shopping and like the codes around that give the surplus value. Um, whereas you like is being deterritorialized and, and these other things being deterritorialized as money's moving in that. Um, it doesn't seem to me to be like Marxist alienation where like you're just not the real man. That is to say, like, I don't mean to sound like um, perhaps Freudian in that. Um, that is to say, like, you're just not, you know, you're not human in that regard or like, you know, you're alien from what you should be. Uh, more so to say, like, not only are you not in the representation, but you're all the intensities in that aren't really like, aren't exactly in relation to you. Like even the, I, I, at least for me, I think even the sense of like excitement at, you know, buying a, a new scooter or whatever it is I need um, or want still seems kind of like, Maybe displaced, but certainly not um, not full. So I honestly can't tell anymore if we're still talking about this chapter or in full shitpost territory. That's not a good sign, I think. Delirium. Take us back, Lou. I mean, I think a lot about reading this book and being in a shopping environment, though. I think that because I work at the grocery store and I'm watching these like flows of people, right, just constantly passing in front of me. But they're mostly like they aren't really being recorded, right? Like mostly I don't recognize any of them. And yeah, it's just this like they're just receipts. They're just flows of money. Maybe there is like some sort of hollowness but i don't know if that's subjective or not maybe i just occupy a site on the on the stores you know maybe i just occupy coordinates in that store that just are disaffected coordinates <laughs> yeah they're recorded as flows of money and and flows of goods but not really as like people which is sort of walking that line between marxist alienation and and what this book brings to it yeah that that has been one of the guiding points for me especially because i know Lou is um, so fond of Marxist theory. I thought I'd, I thought I'd take us there. Uh, I don't have the, I don't have no uh, response to that. I've got nothing against Marx. I don't like reading him. <laughs> I'm only kidding you, man. <laughs> but I do think that's an interesting like um, uh, juxtaposition is like deterritorialization in in relation to alienation because it, it seems to me that like they've got something really interesting and it does seem to be a different picture than alienation suggests right because like whereas alienation would say like, like you did the real man is um is not there right so like when you're working on um when you're working for sony doing i don't know selling headphones 
right like you're not you're not getting to be the real person because it's alienated there whereas their point seems to be no 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 you you're still being a person or, or more so like you're still a body and all these desiring machines are there and the connections are happening and the social machines are there but what what you're experiencing is not the absence of you being a real person but the sense that like the intensities in that um, that are otherwise possible, perhaps even virtual in some sense, um, aren't making it to you because there's the territoriality for them, for your, for the ego, and, or, or at least for the subject to to engage them, isn't provided. I'm reminded of what they talk about a little in three ten, where they talk about um, the capitalist machine being pitiless and cynical. Yeah, and that speaks to employers, right? Like even when your your manager is on the same page as you, right? There is a sense that they're they're going to give you a cynical take, even if they disagree. And it's like that story about the judge, right? Like even if I even if I agree with you, um, right? And it becomes a point of cynicism. Like you're saying, I'm still going to do this because that's kind of a titular responsibility, right? That's what my position. Um, and like that, it's what the representation, at least, um, and those connections kind of are, are moving toward. They talk about cynicism in this section for a bit on page 268 in relation to a bad conscience, which is also interesting because it brings us back to the superego stuff because bad conscience and the superego basically come from the same source, right? Like, bad con Nietzsche's bad conscience is pretty clearly one of the sources for Freud's conception of uh, the superego. Could you say more about that? I always think of bad conscience in relation to Sartre and bad faith. Uh, we should have done this reading of um, the genealogy of morals, because I thought about that when I read the genealogy of morals but that's is months ago um no i actually can't say much to that um, but it does it's basically um i'm not actually sure how bad conscience is used colloquially in english but in german the the um, translation is actually schlechtes gewissen which actually kind of corresponds to a colloquial notion of what the superego is like actually when you are introduced to freud um the actual words that nietzsche uses in his system are the words that are used to explain freud's superego in colloquial terms so um, uh, correct me if i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure sartre's bad faith is like when you it's when you're okay it's the waiter at the at the restaurant right that's the example he gives where he's doing sh like shit at his job not out of the fullness of his being or his desire to be there but because he has to you know because he has he's like compelled to and and i think that that's related to what nietzsche's talking about but it's not exactly the same thing i think i think the way that I think of bad conscience is, the, is that the will can turn back on itself and, and, and sort of, I guess that's the way, I, that's what makes the 
idea clear to me. It's not just shame and it's not just doing something that you don't want to do. It's that you can have a desire and then turn it back and desire the opposite, right? You'd rather desire nothing. You'd rather desire nothingness than not desire. It's sort of like self-mortification. That's how I sort of think about it, yeah. Which is related to the superego, right? Because the superego is the total apparatus of self-mortification, of like moralizing yourself or making yourself feel bad about yourself. But it's not it's not just limited just to self-mortification. It's not it's not just that. Yeah, I think that helps. It sounds like for Nietzsche and for Freud, right? Like it's this it's like the conscience that we were talking about um as the voice of society, whereas for Sartre it's more like that sounds like it's a little bit more personal with your conscience saying like you do better, you should be doing better, right? You shouldn't um at least as I understand, like the bad faith is like you know better than that, or you 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 know better than you do, so to speak. Or I, I should be clear there, you know better than you act. Yeah, that makes sense. That these all seem like similar, at, like aspects of a similar idea, right? The, 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 trying to explain where things like shame come from, or something. <laughs> I'm trying to make it into a, a nice one-liner. It seems like for Sartre, you know better than you act. Um, as opposed to like for the superego more so like you better act as you know uh, as you socially know more so I wonder if we want to take a stab at Tiernan's question because they've asked it twice now and 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 I'm not fully sure I have a good answer Go yeah. for it. it looks like uh, what they're asking is uh, are D&G saying that Freud played a big role in assigning the family to the last territory and that is why we apply it to the uh, the family to the social field Okay, so I mean, I'm not sure I have a complete answer to that, but they have a section where they kind of address that. Um, on page 269, they say, once again, psychoanalysis does not invent Oedipus. It merely provides the letter, the last territoriality, the couch, and the last law, the analyst as despot and, and money collector. But the mother as the simulacrum of territoriality and the father as the simulacrum of the despotic law with, with the slashed, split, castrated ego are the products of capitalism insofar as it engineers an operation that has no equivalent in the other social formations. Actually, I think that's a complete answer, right? Like, the territoriality is... is... Um, uh, oh no, maybe you all have to say something about that. I actually, I like that. I like that as an answer a lot. It sort of gets at what the what they've been doing in this whole section, where they they go through mother territoriality. Well, that's the first thing that they were talking about with the territorial body of the earth, and then the, the father as the law, the despot, and then the castrated ego. You know, like, like it seems like they're going through these social formations and, and providing examples of like, okay, here's where it fits into psychoanalysis. Here's the person that embodies it in psychoanalysis. Um, it does make me sort of have other questions, though, but I want to answer Tiernan's question satisfactorily first. Um, I, I don't, I'm still struggling to really uh, get a good question formulated because I'm just trying to generate like the big picture, you know? Um, how exactly like Oedipus plays in this? Because I have all the the tiny little pieces, but um, 
Yeah, this is this is definitely very helpful. But I guess my next the next thing I need to really get into, and this might be a stupid question, is why exactly these things uh, are the product of capitalism, as it says there. I'm a, uh, is it you think because um, when capitalism re-territorializes in the way that it resuscitates the earth, that it reaches for the image of the family, maybe. The first answer, the first answer I uh, thought was that it's contingent. I, I think, I think maybe I'm wrong, but I'm reading this section as if Deleuze and Guattari are kind of working backwards. That they're starting with an analysis of Oedipus as it was produced in a certain society, and then they work backwards and they produce these images of other societies to explain the logical jumps that resulted in the Oedipus and the analysis that they make at the at the end. Um, does that help? <laughs> So it's sort of like they're, I don't, I don't, they're doing that Deleuze thing where it's philosophy is the production of concepts and less like, they're, they're less like an uncovering this like secret plan to, you, you know, like it's contingent. They're, they started with an analysis of Oedipus and then they went back and produced these stages of history in order to sort of properly situate it in the social context that they were already analyzing from the beginning. Typically they call it, you'll see this with like Foucault and Derrida, uh, points of departure. So they did a complete migration, just like Oedipus does a complete migration, where they started at this point, started with this analysis of psychoanalysis, this auto-critique of Oedipus, and then they went all the way through these sort of anthropological departures, and then came back to Oedipus. Yeah, because I think part of the genealogy is that there's an Oedipal trajectory. I would agree with that. I think that the Oedipal trajectory was what I was trying to like gesture towards the sort of parallelism between the Oedipal trajectory that they map out and the one that Lacan maps out. Nice contrast. Also, I think it's important to keep in mind that what this last section of chapter three here does is summarizing the whole chapter three. Like, we don't have the nuances here all laid out, right? This is a summary of the whole analysis of chapter three. So, actually, I think this this helps. Uh, the section has helped me a lot of getting a bit more to know the uh, to know the connections between the elements they introduced throughout the uh, chapter, but to really understand the mechanics of the product of how uh, how they conceive of this production of Oedipus, we probably would need to go back and go through this whole chapter if not the whole book again <laughs> and i'm sure i will do that sooner or later <laughs> to quote muskie oh boy i just finished reading anti-oedipus time to read anti-oedipus again or likewise in this case oh boy i finished chapter three of anti-oedipus time to start the book again it's yeah, endless semiotics <laughs> i finished reading a sentence in anti-oedipus time to read the sentence over again <laughs> Every damn time. Working backwards, re-evaluating the whole text you've read so far after every new sentence. <laughs> I like that idea. What if we what if we do another series on anti-Oedipus, but this time we read backwards from chapter four to chapter one? <laughs> I thought I thought we were doing we read a sentence and then we wait a whole week and then we read that sentence and the next sentence and then we wait a whole week and then <laughs> Yeah, so this uh, YouTube series that basically um, reads Hegel that way. Oh, that's crazy. That's going to take like 100 years. 
I would suggest you could finish Finnegan's Wake faster. Uh, so, Tiernan, did that help at all? I know we got kind of silly at the end there, but... <laughs> could we get that sentence read aloud again? Uh, the one uh, that wrote once again, psychoanalysis does not invent Oedipus. It merely provides the latter a last territoriality, the couch, and a last law, the analyst as despot and money collector, but the mother as the simulacrum of territoriality, and the father as the simulacrum of the despotic law, with the slashed, split, castrated ego, are the products of capitalism insofar as it engineers an operation that has no equivalent in the other social formations. So I guess what we would need to clarify is the relationship between the images, the simulacra, and um, the territoriality. Okay. So what can you be a little more specific about what in the last part is confusing? Um. Uh. Well. So the where they say uh, that these things are the products of capitalism insofar as it's engineers an operation that has no equivalent in the other social formations so it's i think i read that as that that this sort of oedipus thing is that's what i mean when i say it's contingent right that that they started with an analysis of the society that they are currently living in and they and they pointed out all the ways that capitalism has engineered and like produced this way of looking at individuality with the with their conversation about deterritorialized flows or the personalization of power and 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 that's i think what they're getting at that because the split castrated ego is 100% language borrowed from lacan and they're they're getting at like lacan can only say these things within a certain type of society and that this type of society has a huge impact on the way we experience our psyches and the way that psychoanalysis can be enunciated it's sort of yeah i I, I think that makes sense, right? Because every movement of deterritorialization is accompanied with re-territorialization. So, so this is sort of the psychoanalysis, uh, psychoanalysis setting up the territory of the psyche within the context of a certain society that is about the movement of deterritorialized flows, decoded flows, and, and sort of setting up the right limits and adjusting the limits appropriately. And the um, contrast between capitalism and the other systems and this operation that they talk about in the sentence i think that's what they lay out in the beginning of the section like on page 263 following but that's a bit long to read all i do want to bring up though that this particular sentence that we've looked at it it the 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 sort of resonances with a kind of accelerationism is interesting or or maybe a sort of the mark fisher thing again like capitalist realism because it almost when they say like a last territoriality a last law does that mean does that mean that they really think that capitalism is sort of the end of history right is 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 their universal history finished uh, and it's a tough question i don't know if, i don't know if i have an answer at the time of writing yes yeah, I think that be the answer that I give too. That basically it's the limit in so far as it's uh, there's nothing beyond yet produced. Exactly. If we're if we're stuck with displacing the limit, and that's where we're at at the time of writing, who knows what's next? Who knows if next is possible? And I think they will actually introduce something beyond capitalism in the fourth chapter 
um, I think that's the whole talk. Like, I haven't actually read the fourth chapter, but I know that um, um, there's some talk about the new Earth that will come up, I believe. Ooh, that's a tantalizing note to finish on. I, I'm very curious about what type, types of speculation we can draw from this book about what the next form of society might look like. It gets at my big problem with the book so far about praxis that I've been sort of frustrated with the book for. Well, it seems like one of the things that they're, that they're kind of ending on, particularly this section, right, is that with this problem of the familial as, um, as encroaching, right, be it sexuality or libido, be it um, social machines or, or desiring machines, right, there's still this last territoriality. And I'm thinking that if you got, maybe if you accelerated the flow such that this territoriality um, goes away, perhaps then a, a new socius um, becomes possible. And that seems to be what the new earth would provide. If I understand, I haven't read this next chapter, I'm only speculating, but it would seem to me that the new earth provides that new socius and, and perhaps more drastically, like two, it would seem to me that with Pratsis comes like, not just to, to put it really, really simply, not just reacting to things. I'm so, I'm so amped about that, this dimension of the work, the sort of, we've gotten this really interesting way of connecting social like structures to individual psychology and how these two things are playing off of each other. And this really interesting analysis of the, that phenomena and, and, and it, they've given us, I think some sort of advice on how to live, you know, in a personal way, right? Like Foucault says, this book is a book of ethics of how to live a non-fascist life. Um, now let's, I'm really, really interested in flipping it and turning it the other way and seeing what, what type of politics can we pull out from the book? Not just about personal choice, like life, but where, where can we go with this? If capitalism is the last territoriality and the last law, what can we do to smash it or to modify it or, you know, accelerate it? <laughs> oh no, it's another cube. <laughs> Yeah, the new Earth thing might be from ATP, but um, notice that the diagram by Holland also has a fourth system. Yeah, as I've thought about it in my life, like, which, so like, so you brought the political, like, when you're engaging in politics, like, so the other day I made a point about, like, if you put people on like um it's like a board of directors and you we talk about diversity as it needing to look different right and so like you're just kind of moving the you're just kind of playing with the representation in a sense there right like that's not necessarily going to change things if you put in if you have an all-white uh board of directors and you put in you know 50 percent of the um a different race and they're still making the same decisions. What what have you really accomplished, right? Like, yeah, it looks different, but aren't we still perpetuating many of the same problems? Like, or with like defund the police. Um, and these are not. I'm not advocating positions one way or the other. But I do think there's a point to be made with defunding police because the police provide so much revenue. 
to different um, facets of society, especially because they move people through the judicial system, right? To They move people into court. They get people um, arraigned. They get people bail, right? The police make a lot of that possible. One of the, the things that's going to be and I think this is probably a, a big blind spot in, in the discourse right now is like, even if you move to social workers, are they going to start charging people for their services? Right? Because if, you know, again, you can connect this with associates here with all that cash seeming to kind of go away, right? Like that's, that's going to be a big problem for cities, especially cities. And we can talk about structural racism here too. If, if that is relied upon that heavily, the city is going to see a giant decline in revenue and that's going to affect social services, right? So my, my point being, it's not as simple as just, you know, you can't just take a peg out of the, the Jenga thing and see if the tower falls or not, right? Like, I think um, in a roundabout way to get to an answer to your question, Muskie, like to be, to do revolutionary things there, um, especially in terms of like revolutionary investment, it's going to take more than just going with the um, going with the talking points. In fact, it might even take challenging them, right? Which will merit its own reactions. Yeah, I think I, I definitely am fully on board with the 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 point you made about representation, right? That representation in itself is not revolutionary. It, it, it's a good thing, sure, that, you know, uh, opportunity becomes more equal, but it's not, doesn't mean it's revolutionary, right? Uh, the police one is a different question, but it is a sobering realization of how much our economics are sort of tied up in the carceral state. I think, I think you're dead on about that. I'm not sure what the revolutionary path to take is, but I would prefer, I know what I'd like prefer, so, but but again, we weren't supposed to get into the the p p p advancing politics. It, it it is a sobering realization to think about how much our economics is sort of wrapped up in the carceral system, and probably part of the problem of capitalism, I guess. I I think that's it, though. I think the revolutionary begins with that simple question of, well, okay, if we can't just look to the to whether it's the the, the representation in discourse, the representation elsewhere to explain this and we've got to do it. I think that's probably where it begins, right? If, if we've got to start thinking about, okay, well, defunding the police sounds good, but there's a lot of, it, it, so like we can use Foucault here, right? Like, so Bentham and the, 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 the reformers took away the guillotine and gave us like the Panopticon prison, right? And that's supposed to be more humane, but it comes with all new problems. It comes with all new like you're saying, the, the economics adjust. The, a lot of stuff shifts, um, and, and like in a truly Foucaultian fashion, right? That's what he talks about the quadrille, where some stuff, where some of the same things get concealed and some of the same things get revealed, right? It's like a sleight of hand in some ways. I think starting with those points and starting with um, even the criticism in this regard at least provides a starting point because I don't, and I guess that's basically what I'm getting at is we're basically going to have to start without an answer in some regard. That's not to say we can't look to things. That's not to say like what Marx said, the Brumari is wrong, that we have to stop looking at history. But it is to say like, we can't just, 
we can't just use that to explain everything as a finality. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, I'm reminded of, I've, I've been reading, skimming through Chaosophy a little bit. Um, and I, 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 I will pull a little uh, quote from Guattari that, uh, or I'll paraphrase it basically, but um, it reminds me, it, it, basically he says like, they ask, um, they ask Deleuze and Guattari like, you know, who's on the cutting edge of, you know, human humanity, you know, who's, who's on the cutting edge of these like psychology and stuff, who are the avant-garde, I think is pretty much the exact question. And Guattari is like, well, I'm not sure, sure, sure that the schizophrenics aren't the avant-garde, right? He says something like schizophrenics might be the actual avant-garde in human society. And, and I think what I'm trying to get at is your point about like, oh, we have to start without an answer. That's probably why Deleuze and Guattari sort of position the schizophrenic as the revolutionary person because they're positioning a person who's, you know, critique, right? Whose questions, whose flows are so decoded that like reality itself kind of becomes an issue. Well, and this is where enunciation is really important too. But um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's effectively what I'm getting at is that like, again, I don't mean to say that we can't look to, we shouldn't like, for, for so then the question becomes why read Antioedipus? Because we're not reading Antiedipus to solve all of our problems, right? I think Foucault is extremely um, salient in his remark that we shouldn't take this to be the new Hegel. In the same way, like, this is not a book to explain everything that's ever going to happen and has happened. Uh, that's not what we should use it for. And I, I think that that can be really helpful. Yeah, I had a disillusionment of a kind of moment with that with the book like that. But but that's sort of a, a personal thing. <laughs> I mean, it's normal, right? Like another way of saying is this isn't going to be the new Upanishads. This isn't going to be the new Bible. And even then our relationship with those texts can change, right? Where we don't need the book that, you know, everything else follows from or the system that everything else can be explained from, right? It's so far, it's still one of my favorite books, I should go on to say. But I think... I was really, really excited when I started reading it. I really, really felt like I was like gonna get some answers. And then kind of now that I'm at the end of the book, more or less, uh, or looking back on it, I, I feel like I got a lot from the book, but I'm also, I'm, I'm aware of how limited what I got is in terms of like, you know, I know a lot more about psychoanalysis now like like it was as far as like how what i can know about anything else it's sort of been thrown into question but but i do know more about lacan than when i started it kind of sounds like that you can't wait for us to get to a thousand plateaus very excited for a thousand plateaus indeed yes <laughs> i'll second that I was actually never going to read. Well, I should say never. I was actually going to read a thousand plateaus, and then thirty years later read Antiedipus, but because of the server, uh, the spontaneity of that uh, caused me to reverse that. Lou, what do you think in terms of like what we're discussing? Um, I think I'm a bit tuned out actually. Like reading Antiedipus for me was basically. Like, like basically I jumped in on the deep end because like my knowledge of psychoanalysis is basically non-existent. Uh, my knowledge of Nietzsche is basically non-existent. Um, 
generally my knowledge of philosophy is basically non-existent. I know a bit of sociology and a bit of philosophy that relates to that. But um, basically, uh, I'm I was overwhelmed at every at every point of this reading, and um, I'm glad that I actually think I understand some trajectories. Like I get a sense of where things are going. And I hope that actually I, I feel like ATP will be a bit uh, more productive for me because now a few months after we started um, Anti-Oedipus, I've read a lot of Latour actually and I've read a bit other stuff. I read more Bergson, um, which all helped me to actually relate this to sociology stuff that I actually know better. And I think that ATP is a much more clear connection to stuff that I that's actually relevant for me right now. Like psychoanalysis isn't isn't that relevant for me right now like it is if i actually want to deep dive into theory again <laughs> because reading the losing gottery is not a deep dive in the theory apparently but um yeah we'll see yeah it's, it's psychoanalysis is a weird discipline after after like this is basically the sum total of my like uh exposure to psychoanalysis in a in a i guess serious way uh but it's a really weird discipline where it's useful in a lot of ways for like myself and for making like understanding uh, in social interactions and stuff and feeling satisfied about you know knowing smart stuff and 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 but it's not really useful in terms of like you know literally anything material that i can affect <laughs> Unless I want to get really, really deep into theory. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, you if you read anything, you'll meet psychoanalysis, but in a lot of things, you basically can ignore that it's there, right? Like, I've read some Judith Butler, and there is psychoanalysis going on there, but you can basically sail with what you get from her. And that's with a lot of stuff where I encountered um, psychoanalysis, but this book really supposes that you know your st that you know your psychoanalysis. Like, especially in the second chapter, it really felt like this book was written for psychoanalysts um, to show the psychoanalysts why they are wrong or what they are doing wrong and how they can do better. But, um, well, that's not me, right? <laughs> Yeah, so much of this book has felt like a conversation that, you know, is really, really, uh, what is it? That Deleuze and Guattari are having a conversation with other people that have read all the, these books and are like part of this conversation and have been for years. But I sort of always felt like I just like walked into the room and was just like, oh, okay, got to try to pick up what's going on now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Think, consider this, though. Supposing you read, read this book or supposing a person read this book and then went into psychotherapy. Total paradigm shift, right? Well, I mean, I when I started reading Antiochus, I was still in uh, here, uh, I don't know what's behavior, behavioral therapy, what's the English term for that? 
cognitive behavioral behavioral blah. difficult words you know what i mean um therapy and um i parted with my therapist um and she said i should probably look to get a psychoanalysis <laughs> so that will be fun i haven't done that yet but i might try that um i've been i've been in a pretty like in a therapy session the whole time i've been reading this book with a doctor i mean um and it is kind of I did feel sort of hypocritical for a while reading this book and then going to therapy, but I don't think that this book is an anti-therapy book exactly either. Hopefully my mic is on. I don't think it's anti-therapy either, but um, more so what I'm suggesting is that, well, one, you've probably gained a lot of tools to talk to a therapist as a therapist and not as a, um, not as someone who's going to cure you. Right. So, like, I don't want to suggest that they've given us the playbook because I don't think I don't think that's quite right. But I do think, especially in this point about auto critique. Yeah, I, I, first of all, I absolutely agree with you guys. Right. Like, there, There's a lot of stuff here that if a psychoanalyst read, they would immediately pick up on. Right. And they, even if they don't know Lacan, the Freudianism alone would be right. That would speak volumes. Um, but even if you're not well-versed in psychoanalysis, I suspect that with what they're discussing in terms of the unconscious and even Oedipus, um, and even with the remarks about the, the, well, here we are again on the couch with our feet up. Nice to be home, right? Um, to, to that point, and even to their point about the familial, this does give you, as someone who's read it, quite a lot of room to actually critique your your psychoanalyst during the session or to talk about like they're saying right like you don't talk about it outside of the room it's supposed to be confidential yeah but um in that same way it seems like some of what they're doing especially in terms of this so-called last territory is by bringing it to its out of critique making that much more difficult and, and through those means that i've um that i've suggested yeah, as to what Musky said to um, it not being an anti-therapy book, I think it's an anti-therapy book, but one for therapists, like not for the patient. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I, it, 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 I think it's a book that's like, it wants to do therapy differently. It doesn't want to do this same psychoanalytic playbook. It has problems with the whole Oedipal triangle thing, but it doesn't have problems with, and it has problems with the monetary, you know, the sort of social structure that goes into therapy. I think all that's fair. Um, but it doesn't have problems with that, like the idea of psychotherapy. I think that that's clear based on, you know, what Guattari goes on to do it or what he does, at, you know, in his practices and, and stuff that like, they don't have problems with the idea of trying to do this. It's that the way it's being done has problems, right? It's, it's an anti-therapy book for therapists. It's for therapists to critique and do their own practice better. That makes a lot of sense. Yes, but I think also, and what I'm getting at is that even for the patient to go into that, there's a certain, it seems to me that you have to sort of be armed and ready uh, for what you're going into in the regard that they're talking about, right? Like a battle cry of this would be, I'm not going to be Oedipalized. 
uh, I'm reminded of the the section they talk about like Schreiber doing playful edipalization. Uh, I think about that section a lot. Uh, like, yeah, sure, the the God can be my dad, and the angels can be my older brother, and but my mom was the Virgin Mary, and all the birds are also all these uh, little girls, and blah 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, even if you just even if you just harangue them, right, and screw with them, right, you're. I'm not going to be unapplied. Or, as I like to say, that's not what I'm experiencing. Cool. That's actually an answer to the question about praxis. Kind of a kind of a crazy review session. <laughs> it, it's a start. And that, just to be clear, what I meant, to, so I don't get misunderstood, I don't mean to say that we can't look to this book for help and that, like, when I say we don't start with an answer, I don't mean to suggest that we just you know, throw out what we've read and all that and start from scratch, because I don't think that's possible. I don't think you can make yourself a tabula rosa, even if you can make yourself a body without organs. Um, but I do mean to suggest that, like, it's probably wise not to start as though because we read Marx or, or because we read Smith or because we read somebody or because we listen to this discourse from an employer or what have you, um, that we now understand and have sort of like the, the panacea um, to the problems we arrive at, because I think that will only get us into further trouble. Yeah, I second that. And it's and that's just as true as of, of uh, political projects as it is in therapy, right? Going into therapy and expecting to get a cure-all or an answer or, you know, medication, expecting to get a cure-all from medication instead of just another tool to help with, you know, uh, your brain or uh, employment or artistic creativity, I, really any of these things, going into anything, expecting a cure-all. If anything, this is the, uh, the book is, <laughs> this book is anti, uh, anti-cure-alls because they're all paranoiac machines and, and despotic signifiers. And <laughs> I do not think this is a good closing. I, please cut this out. <laughs> oh, but there is a point there, right? Like the book, and I think you probably get this with most post-structuralism, like, even if we did have a new Hegel or a new Marx, would that really, you know, don't we already have one? Is having a new one really going to get us out of the, you know, doing the thinking and work for ourselves? Even, or to, to give it a different way, it's not always about starting a new group, is it? Right, like, although we do, I, one of the ways I interpret this genealogy is, as I've said, I, I sometimes think about the server in this regard, not to say that we're edipalizing, but because we're a group and we arguably there's a group fantasy here, yeah? And there's investment in that, um, right? There's cathetsis. And it would seem to me that this book warns us of a possible um, trajectory, right? Of a possible edipal trajectory. And one of our challenges, especially if we do wish to be revolutionaries, is developing a cathetsis, right? Because not, not just a praxis, but one that has this cathetsis that doesn't just react against that and end up going with it. So honorary mention of Lou, who just, I think, wrote the best joke of the day. He wrote, New Hegel is Derrida. Deconstruction is the new dialectics. Everyone thoughts about it. No one knows what it means. And with that, uh, Lou's joke will take us to the end of this session. Thank you for joining us for this review session of Anti-Oedipus, Chapter 3, Section 11. 
please join us again um, this coming Monday for Chapter 4, Section 1, which is called Introduction to Schizoanalysis, and Section 1 will be the social field, which seems very appropriate right now. Thank you.